The United States today is the world's top agricultural exporter, sending roughly half of what it grows, raises, and farms abroad for a world hungry for beef, pork, grain, and other foodstuffs essential to life, health, and nutrition. Although less than 2% of Americans actively farm for a living, the legacy of demographic settlement patterns, logistical, industrial, as well as financial innovations in places like Chicago can all be traced to the great American harvest. I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time theater. Hello, and welcome to the Myth of the 20th Century podcast. I'm Hans Lander. Today I'm joined by Mr. Adam Smith. Hey, everyone. Uh, we have a great show great little show for you today but first we need to uh i think thank people for some donations make some announcements so adam why don't you uh, get us started yeah thanks i just wanted to say thank you to all the people that were interested in the book we talked about last week there were quite a few that came in if you would like a copy that you've um, donated from bitcoin uh, just please send an email to myth20c at tunanota.com uh, if you've done Patreon, uh, Nick can take that, uh, or I can do it as well at uh, the myth uh, email that I just mentioned, but his is nmm20c at tutanota.com. And there was one donation that uh, did, I do not believe I got an email for this, so if you'd like a copy, please email me uh, at one of those email addresses. But the uh, wallet was uh, from 2MCB, so thank you. That w- they gave a very generous donation. And with that, uh, Hans, I think we're uh, ready to go. I have one uh, one donation to thank. Uh, there's a, a lifelong supporter of the show, personal friend of mine. Uh, we'll just call him Mr. Surfboard. He uh, He's given money and just kind of emotional support over the last two years. So uh, he asked for a copy of the book, and I uh, sent him one. He's given, I don't know. Probably over a hundred dollars in, in just kind of personal cash to me, coffees, lunches, hanging out, whatever. So uh, thank you, Mr. Surfboard, and uh, you'll get a free free copy of uh, Adam's fun little book. But uh, today we're gonna do something a little different. First of all, this is totally by accident. Uh, pretty much, it's mostly my fault. I had some scheduling conflicts. The last couple of weeks, uh, some big personal changes. Today was kind of a uh, kind of a wild day at work. Uh, basically, my the CTO of my company quit, and then two other senior people announced they were transitioning away. So it's been it's been hectic. But uh, we've been thinking about transitioning ourselves back into a more in depth analysis um, mindset. And with that typically comes multi-show 
trends, um, multi-show analyses, kind of trying to build overall consensus over the course of multiple shows, over the course of probably multiple months or just a long time. You know, mostly internal perspectives just from the four of us. Uh, you know, kind of think in that sense, relying less on guests and really doing harder research ourselves now that some personal things in all of our lives are kind of getting settled, it'll be a little easier for us to do this. The, one of the first topics we wanted to really dive into would be the history of American agriculture, or just American farming. Um, we've done, we've done uh, shows on this, or we've touched on this topic before. Uh, to be honest, we haven't, in my personal opinion, really tackled it properly. Uh, part of that has to do with the fact that American agriculture is a very complex topic. Uh, if you look for books on sort of the rural American economy or American agricultural development at any period in time or general agricultural trends, especially if you look for a- academic papers or um, long-form articles dealing with various subjects therein, historical subjects, current subjects, it's overwhelming. There's uh, there's several very long, very dense, but very interesting books on the topic of American agriculture and the American rural economy and uh, rural development. A lot of these books have very different takes from one another. They have very different perspectives. They cite very different historical analyses uh, and, and in some cases an entirely different historiography sometimes focusing on various trends, various aspects, or various periods, or uh, sometimes focusing on everything in totality or specific events. Part of this, I think, has to do with just the actual history of American agriculture is complex because it is the backbone of the United States. The backbone of American historical development, of the general American historiography, is the history of agriculture in many ways. Uh, The two are sort of uh, intractable from one another. You can't necessarily broach one topic genuinely without broaching the other. Uh, Part of this has to do, obviously, with uh, what's accepted as as uh, as a normality in American historiography, which is that America was not only an agricultural nation, it was very much an agricultural nation that was created mostly for profit-seeking and not necessarily um, substance. Why that differs from the majority of agricultural history is that most agricultural history is just about sustaining. It's about survival. It's about, uh, you know, long-term trend analysis or archaeological analysis of how particular elements of agriculture came to be. But the reality is that, you know, from the Neolithic Revolution onwards and then from some of the first agricultural civilizational aspects of the Near East and Mesopotamia, uh, in parts of Europe, in parts of what uh, used to be in North Africa, parts of um, sort of the Northwest General Eurasian steppe, you know, things did not change fundamentally from those periods until maybe uh, the 15th or even 16th century. 
So you're looking at you know, close to maybe 10,000 years, or if not more in some cases. In the case of um, like the Baltics, yeah, I believe that they've found in the last couple of years that there's evidence of homegrown um, Baltic pre-Indo-European Baltic farmers going back 12,000 years. But the trend you know, of Baltic farmers from 12,000 years ago till maybe the 16th century Estonian kingdom uh, in agriculture changed very little, if at all. The only thing that might have changed would have been irrigation techniques, might have been the introduction of more metalworking, Maybe the slight introduction of more animal, you know, animal husbandry paired with agriculture, both in the development of agriculture and in actual animal husbandry for um, production of food supply. But generally, the trends changed very little. Things changed dramatically starting in the 17th century, uh, both in Europe and especially in what became the United States in sort of old colonial America or old colonial New England. Um, in Europe at the time, let's say in the 17th century, farming was still somewhat needed for survival. Uh, there was a lot of tumultuous problems in Europe. There were uh, a great deal of wars. There were several political conflicts. Uh, the economic realities of Europe were still somewhat stuck in the medieval era. And most of the population of Europe was highly dependent on agriculture just to survive. And they were not making a great deal of money off of it. They were not growing substantially. Part of that was due to population density. Part of that was due to um, a kind of constrictive land law. Uh, most of the land law in Europe, even to this day, but especially at the time, was overly complex. Uh, it was pri primarily built on the backs of um, sort of feudal or, or sovereign feudal uh, lawmakers who created a huge and very difficult to navigate network of sovereign land, uh, you can't really call them legislations, but codes or, or, or civil codes or civil legal codes that uh, dictated who exactly could do what on what piece of land. Some parts of Europe, English, uh, Dutch, parts of northern France, uh, you know, other small pockets of Europe, actually some pockets of, of, of uh, the far east of Russia, had a less strict system primarily because of either uh, cultural morales or, or um, in the case of certain areas in the Russian Far East, because the authorities were way too far away and uh, the czar and the Russian elite were in the Russian boyars were trying to spur as much land development as they could in the Far East after winning much of it from various uh, sort of holdouts from the old Mongol era. Generally, though, uh, United States and the first colonies had a new opportunity. Land was incredibly easy to attain. Um, it wasn't uncommon for a relatively uh, minor figure in the farming sphere to attain about a thousand acres 
and land. And it was also not uncommon for most of that land to remain undeveloped for long stretches of time. Most of it would remain virgin forest or meadows or rock formations or uh, even marsh for long periods of time, even though it was owned and in and, and some theory um, patrolled and operated on. Uh, land was so plentiful and the population so low, there was very little need to constantly develop and find new ways to exploit the land. The English, uh, the English colonists, when they first started really arriving at the beginning of the 17th century, and, and a lot of um, these sort of joint stock corporations, these sort of early private companies, were incentivized to go out and purchase land. In some cases, given, in some cases, uh, would purchase it themselves. In some cases, would work for it over time and then obtain the land um, through a variety of different contracts. And as an indentured servant showed up and then were eventually freed from their indentured servitude and then granted land under various um, state uh, or colonial state legislations, uh, land ownership was very diffused. There were, there were big landowners very much off the bat, but there were also a lot of very small landowners. This kind of hark, you know, and this is something Victor Davis Hanson, who's a uh, and if you guys know Victor Davis Hanson, he's an, an interesting American historian. Uh, I think that the, the like the right wing on the internet has kind of struggled with him, really struggled at how to how to approach him and his work. He's come over towards I think our side on a lot of issues slowly or, or gradually, but he's uh, himself a descendant of this old farming stock. If you ever see a picture of him, he looks like uh, that sort of quintessential American painting of uh, Mr. and Mrs. American Farmer from the middle of nowhere. He, he looks just like that guy, with the, the bald guy with glasses and pitchfork. And uh, he, he's written several books on the history of American agriculture, the history of farming, and the history of farm, uh, agriculture and Western civilization. And what he notes is that there, there is a, a very important historical parallel between um, the growth of rum and the growth of the United, United States and that both were expanding into land that was not really owned under their own legal code. So there were a variety of ways for large numbers of people to attain land easily, either within the Italian heartland or uh, in the case of the United States on the eastern seaboard and kind of edging out towards uh, the Shenandoah Valley, edging deeper into the south, edging uh, kind of along the uh, the Appalachian Mountain Range, and uh, even early on, you know, somewhat deep into places like what we eventually call Kentucky or, uh, or Ohio. So that historical parallel is, is important to kind of keep in mind going from here on out because, um, as Hansen will note several times, that uh, the way that you would build the character of the United States in the way that you would build the character of Rome if you wanted to you know, actually have an authentic Roman or an authentic old American is that you'd basically make them a farmer. And then over time, you know, over the course of several hundred years, um, the descendants of those farmers of that farming class would create um, you know, bureaucrats, would create soldiers, would create professionals, would create engineers, would create politicians, would create uh, tradesmen. 
But you typically have it in the, the outset of these very successful, very um, powerful, large population countries, a very secured family-based farming class. Now today, uh, the, the family-based farm, if you can even really think of farms as being family-based anymore, uh, Hansen and some other authors uh, estimate that their numbers are probably somewhere lower than 500,000. Yeah, last I looked, the U.S. population percentage engaged in agriculture as a profession is less than 2% of the U.S. Well, that's, U.S. That's, total. that's just... That's just as a profession, but you know, like actual family-based small farms, which you can kind of center around the number of acres they have, anywhere from 50 to 500 acres, I think is a common, you know, kind of a more common market that they would use now for family-based farms. And also the, the concept that your family helps you own and operate it uh, is less than 500,000 total farmers, and that makes up far less than 1% of the country. Of the total population of the country. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I think that there's there's a there is a historiographical or historiographical problem that people often make, and that's in saying well, the U.S. used to be entirely a nation of people that were just about farming. The problem with this is that uh, the United States had uh, what you was basically called the commercial mentality in its early days. Yes, there were a lot of family-based farms and somewhere between 75 to maybe almost 90, depending on the year, because it did fluctuate, uh, of early America, even past the revolution, owned or operated some kind of, um, you know, substantially acred land for agricultural production. Whether everything from spices to uh, just flowers, to animal husbandry, to actual crops, to vegetables, to to fruit orchards, to uh, everything. Most of the population did own and operate and was involved in it. The the, the difficulty there uh, in saying that, well, the country's always been like that, the country's always had all these small-based farms, is that the country has also always had this element that I was talking about earlier, there's a, there's a significant lack of subsistence farming. People were not farming to survive. This was what separates um, America from the historical parallel of Rome and Greece and other and, and nations like France. Uh, it was predominantly farming for profit-seeking sake, and it was farming for export's sake. Many of the sort of early Jeffersonian economic models proposed of an, a big agrarian republic. Jefferson had these, these political ideals about what kind of person that created, yes. But it was also rooted in a fundamental economic reality that the United States had a very, very good idea about how to trade uh, raw resources and agricultural products. The United States was packing meat, packing beef in the mid-17th century and exporting it to Europe, to the Caribbean. America, the American beef farm, um, or I'm sorry, cattle ranchers from New England, from the South, were feeding the British Empire as early as 
the very beginning of the 18th century, if not before that. They were exporting packed beef all around the world. They were exporting lumber. They were exporting all kinds of spice. They were exporting pork. They were exporting all kinds of crop, corn, wheat, rye, rice, barley, and and all kinds of cereal grains in incredible quantities, massive quantities. And a lot of this was done, obviously, uh, or was able to be done because land ownership was very diffused. Land was cheap. There was a there was a lot of very smart labor. This is sort of like the the peak of American physiognomy and fitness in a lot of ways. Uh, the average height at that time was somewhere around six foot. So you had a, a nation of tall, fit, smart people who were capable of engaging in very productive agricultural growth despite not having a lot of great technology to do anything with at the time. A lot of them were still using plows. They were using oxes. They were using horses. They were not using anything substantial, and they were producing massive amounts of agriculture, and most of them only for parts of the year. They were not doing this all year round. There were fam- there were a great deal of family farms that that was their entire business, but the majority of people engaged in this were doing it uh, part of the year. They lived in a city or they lived in a town, and they did other things. They had other professions. They had other hobbies. They had other means of income. So this is also kind of an era of um, real, I think, economic utopianism that a lot of people instinctively hearken back to because from the outs- from, or from an outsider's perspective, it looks like the ideal vision of what English law and English custom and the English could do if they were not constrained with a lot of the political problems that existed in England itself. English, the English, when they were kind of unleashed onto the American wilderness to do, to tame it and do whatever they wanted with it, it immediately created a uh, society that was admired and created agricultural production that rivaled established agricultural powers like the French and the Russians and the English. It immediately dwarfed some of their agricultural production in many ways and it wasn't before long that um, the United States was incidentally feeding much of Europe through the British uh, trade system because of a variety of wars that had uh, ravaged much of European farmland in, in the 17th century and especially into the 18th century. So Adam, uh, you have, you maybe jump in here and kind of give your thoughts. Yeah, you mentioned Thomas Jefferson, um, his sort of famous paraphrased quote was that once Americans, you know, grow to have the great cities of Europe, we'll become as corrupt as they were. And so his ideal view of society was more of an agrarian one. Now, your thought on his reasoning or kind of a subliminal you know, reasoning was that it was going to be an economic uh, justification as well, something I've never thought of. But from a political point of view, um, you can sort of see how the cities of America today are very different from the agricultural areas, the rural areas. And I think there's there's a lot to be said for his thinking on why cities tend to develop into these corrupt places. 
Uh, my personal theory on why that is is because there's just so much more wealth concentrated in a small area that politicians and businesses basically have much more temptation to take from the pot rather than contribute to it because there's just so much there. Uh, when you're living in a rural area or a farming community, your job is basically yourself and your family. And because it's so far away from most services and especially, you know, hundreds of years ago when transportation and the internet uh, were much, I mean, the internet didn't exist and transportation was much slower uh, and the speed of communication in general was much slower. Uh, you were much more autonomous. You had to be, uh, there was no choice. And so your, your tendency towards self-sufficiency, personal responsibility is much, much higher versus when you're living in a city when you can sort of talk your way into situations and get sinecure jobs and steal you know quite simply from warehouses and things like that um you know if you're in the mafia you know in uh, the 1970s in new york or something like that that's just not possible if you're living in the appalachias you know blazing a trail through the forest you basically eat what you kill and what you grow and i think that's right. um i think ex Explaining again why our political divide today is is so stark when you look at the geography. It's it's a rural urban divide, right? And the the you know land was so easy to procure, and and there was rent was not really a thing, which was another very um, Romanesque dynamic. There was very little rent taking. There was very little uh, tolling done. So farmers, as long as they were able to defend themselves or as long as they cooperated and sort of um, worked within the general kind of Roman cultural sphere, um, were able to kind of wage a defensive farming posture against the, in the Samnites and Etruscans and, and you know, various other uh, Italic groups that the Romans uh, fought and conquered. And the same dynamic existed uh, with, with the Native Americans and uh, the English colonial farmers. Uh, at first, I mean, the relationship kind of went back and forth. It was somewhat beneficial sometimes, and then often um, it was very, very uh, acrimonious. But generally, um, you were kind of able to do whatever you wanted. But if you wanted to participate in the larger British trading system at the time and you wanted to participate in defense networks, you maybe had to pay some fee or you had to contribute in some way to get the attention of the English regulars. Uh, I think this is actually technically how George Washington gets his start in the early um, British military in the United States is that he's basically an Indian killer. And uh, he, he was kind of at the service of the crown and helping a lot of the farmers out in uh, who were more detached from the seaboard and moving further and further inland uh, fight off Indian raids and, and even launch counterattacks to prevent further Indian raids and sort of open up areas for scouting and uh, surveying and then eventual farming. Uh, but things were so cheap and so easy to acquire fertilization was really rare fertilization was um, could be accomplished a couple different ways at the time uh, I think one of the one of the anecdotes you're often taught in school is that the Native Americans taught the English to fertilize their crops with the, with fish uh, but this is sort of a, a misnomer the English already knew how to do that and in fact 
most of the farming techniques and most of the crops that were raised and most of the and almost all the animal husbandry techniques and many of the animals were brought over by the English. The English and, and the Dutch and Germans as well already had all these skills. They already had all this know-how. They already had the raw seeds. Honestly, all that was holding them back um, in their mother countries was lack of land development, lack of land to work on that they could uh, kind of develop on their own. So the I think that one of the things we should dispel is that there's actually in any honest history of the American kind of agricultural growth, the the Native Americans played almost no part or played very little part in getting the English set up. The English were already accomplished farmers in England, and there were very there, there weren't many climate differences between New England or um, sort of some of the lower colonial states like New York and New Jersey and and England itself. Well, I think once things were going, that's probably true, but the early settlements, from what I understand, Jamestown in particular in the 1600s was particularly difficult for the uh, the English who were located, which in modern day terms was, was fairly close to actually the capital of the United States. It was um, up the Chesapeake Bay, I believe. And in that first year or two, they basically had to received donations from uh, the native Indian tribes because they were going to starve. And a lot of people did die from disease and, and starvation from what I know. Uh, once things were developed though, you know, the, this population size actually quite grew quite, quite a bit larger than the native population. And from there, you know, the rest is history as they say. Um, and of course the anecdote that we always hear about the Thanksgiving uh, for the Mayflower settlers up in new England was also, the, the other other story I've heard where, you know, initially developing those colonies is very difficult. Right. Right. And one of the one of the actual real shakeups was the arrival of more and more German farmers that kind of made up Pennsylvania. And the English farmers had one sort of general flaw, if you could call it that, in their approach to, you know, this early kind of land development in the United States. And that would be that they didn't really engage in crop rotation. They mostly engaged in field rotation or just land rotation, which was unheard of uh, for the most part in Europe, except for very large estates. Yeah, uh, it, just that, the that plentifulness was, of the land just made that possible. I mean, exactly. the other story I've heard is that on the Great Plains, when they were planting that that part of the, the continent. I mean, they would simply just continue moving west once they depleted the soil, because there was just there was just more land to obtain right. for free. Right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, and, it's and, just and, unprecedented. And especially post eighteen, you know, after the eighteen sixties, when there's you know the Morrill Act and there's Hatch Act and there's all kinds of subsidizations and, and grants for state universities and states to propel land ownership and farming education. Um, there's also homesteading. And they were being paid to just expand the borders of the United States and, and do basic development, clearing and scouting on a land or, and surveying on a piece of land, giving that back to the government, and then move, they could just move on. So there was very little – there was not many incentives to, to, 
totally settle down. You know, you could just keep homesteading. You could keep building out more homesteads, more property. Um, that was that was done purposefully. Uh, and, in, and in fact, in the early colonial days, there, there was this cultural aspect of uh, basically there, there were huge swaths of people that were not really indentured servants or they were freed indentured servants, um, but they didn't own land yet. And they would offer services to work a piece of land for you or even um, it, sort of own it for you. They, you know, they would come up with all kinds of various uh, loose contracts for land ownership. And they basically, you would own it for periods of time and then give it back. And you would have to, but you'd have to do something with it. That was part of the contract. You'd have to develop it in some way. This ended up benefiting the United States when it actually came time to properly develop a lot of that land for more long-term use, whether it was infrastructure, whether it was uh, farming related, whether it was uh, for um, sort of permanent land development in the sense of manufacturing centers uh, or roads. And that was basically that the land would be properly scouted, uh, records, and you know there was, a, there was a deep culture of record keeping and, and uh, sharing of information, centralization of information uh, that allowed a lot of this to retain or this information be retained long term and then built upon but there was a there was a large amount of mapping surveying um basic sort of soil analysis if you can even call it that just, just kind of judging the the kind of soil judging the plant life judging things like rock formation um trees that might be an issue marsh levels if it floods a lot of this information made its way to local municipalities or, or local colonial estates, and then they, they made its way to the, the colonial companies or eventually the state governments. And that information was retained uh, and it was distributed and used for further land development. And so this process of trying to turn a quick profit, doing something with a piece of land, you know, whether it was just planting a couple, a couple acres of wheat or, uh, or a couple acres of corn, or just building um, some pens for for uh, for pork production, and then you you, know, you left a few years later. You left the next season after you were done. Uh, that was still useful. You, that land was developed. That land was cleared. That land was scouted. It was surveyed. It made things easier to defend, um, and this really helped a lot of the later development. Without a lot of this, development would have occurred much more slowly. Uh, and there's probably there's probably good evidence that the Homesteading Act would have probably not as been wide, as widespread as it had been. It would have been more focused on just developing areas much closer to the eastern seaboard rather than developing the Great Lakes, the Midwest, um, and even kind of edging into the Pacific Northwest. Um, most of the kind of early towns in America or, you know, what became like the major cities of America were basically agricultural centers. This was, uh, the general kind of cultural path that the English, the Romans, the French, the Greeks, most large-scale successful civilizations followed, uh, even going back to uh, you know older Near Eastern history, Hittites, Egyptians, Mesopotamians, uh, Mycenaeans, 
uh, and even going back to probably what we know from prehistory, this seems to be a common trend. And this is a sen- this is a trend of good societal development. Uh, you have townships, you have cities that are based near waterways or bays, and uh, they are also basically centers for agricultural export. If you are able to produce more crops or more livestock than is needed for just subsistence, you would export it from one of these places. And it's names of places you already know, Boston, New York City, Baltimore, Charleston, Philadelphia. These were all products of needing to centralize information, needing to centralize uh, farming production, uh, I'm sorry, export of farming production, and, and in some cases just centralize what was needed for farming production. Um, blacksmiths, woodworkers, um, trade guilds, royal authorities, colonial authorities, um, even militia groups, armories, things like that that would have been needed, bakers to actually use your wheat, millers, meat packers, uh, shipbuilders, so you can actually export everything back to England or down to the Caribbean or different parts of the United States or in the, on the eastern seaboard. These places were all built over time out of a need to do something with all this uh, incredible quantities of livestock. And this this development really starts to take off in the later uh, 17th century, but around 1715, 1720 is when colonial authorities and royal authorities really start to recognize and determine that Boston, Philadelphia, uh, Baltimore, Charleston are – very important cities, and they are responsible for large and larger and larger amounts of economic activity, um, not just servicing the agricultural elements around them, but as with most civilizational development, um, they've kind of developed an economy unto themselves. There's artisans, there's merchants, there's the educated class, there's the political class. There's sort of professional uh, researchers. There's uh, even early scientists, early engineers. That all starts to develop over time because the city has grown an economy unto itself and has made a lot of money servicing the agricultural areas around it and exporting their goods. Um, now, the English crown kind of tried to step in, and you know the American agricultural scene was very rooted in. in certain religious stocks that were not in favor at all of any sort of English royal involvement in their day-to-day lives. But most people, most farmers or most people that own land that they owned and operated in some way uh, just generally weren't interested because they felt as though um, up to that point, and the English really, the English crown really starts to try and step in around 1730 to 1740. Um, that up to that point, they had gotten away with very little taxation. They, they had gotten away with no rent. They had gotten away with, um, you know, skirting what the English crown had decreed as land ownership titles. And they could, they could skirt it and they could come up with their own courts. They were using their own common law. They were using their own contracts and their own lawyers to settle disputes. They were doing this all independently of the English crown. Obviously, you can see sort of the early precursors for revolution forming here, and why a lot of the you know landowners in the United States were some of the most vociferous, especially in the South, vociferous in supporting revolution, because up to that point, 
they had seen this as an opportunity to kind of separate this sense of ownership that the crown had from all this land that they had spent a lot of time developing, maintaining, uh, growing and understanding and working in kind of concert with one another to do so. They had done this very much independently of the crown and it, um, the crown had actually made several sort of strategic mistakes in not focusing on their defense. A lot of the American militia structure and early American military structure is basically developed to protect farms. Um, same with the early American financial structure is basically built to finance both land speculation and also growth of farms. You know, the ability to acquire capital for farm investment, for land investment, for land surveying, for paying millers to you know actually mill your wheat, paying meat packers, paying for sort of early woodworkers to build kind of what would become silos or sheds. Uh, all of that is is in need of financing, and the Americans are able to build sort of their own financial network of a somewhat even centralized financial network out of sheer willpower and out of sheer desire to be able to manage their own affairs. There were a lot of ways to acquire land. I mean, it, it's very complex. Uh, generally, though, uh, you would essentially notify local uh, joint stock authorities or royal or colonial authorities, uh, and you would determine if the land is already owned, and if it wasn't owned, uh, it was yours for the taking. There was a great deal of just, if, if no one owns it, go take it, and then make sure that you file certain contracts or claims with your local government, and that's that. Most people kind of had an understanding relationship, uh, again, different cultural mores. Uh, so, you know, if someone said that they owned a land, you believe them, and there was not a great deal of sort of deception or, uh, or lying. The shadiest thing that was going on was land speculation, um, which is not much of a thing anymore, but for a long period of the United States history, I would say from the colonial era, maybe into the 1910s, uh, but especially in sort of the 1810s to 1860s era, uh, sort of antebellum America, it was it was a huge problem and it was a huge dynamic of both American finance and the American farming lifestyle was this idea of land speculation. Uh, in a lot of ways, it was in this weird hearkening back to how various English aristocrats and you know, feudal lords would own large estates of land through financial manipulation or through title manipulation. Uh, there was definitely an element of various coastal elites on the eastern seaboard trying to own vast tracts of land at you know, ridiculous valuations out in the Midwest, you know, a piece of land they would never see for the rest of their life. Well, there's two examples that come to mind of perhaps a different sort. You could probably compare it to modern day uh, developers buying time on a Saturday in infomercial slot to try to pitch you on why you should live in uh, some beautiful remote region of the United States with all this nature around you, but no real fundamental economy. There was a lot of promotion of that type. Uh, obviously during the gold rush, uh, in California, you know, come stake your claim and people would basically try to sell you a piece of land that they had bought and probably mark it up a little bit and 
try to sell it for a profit. Uh, the other one that comes to mind is in Chicago. There was a huge amount of promotion uh, done by sort of people who were, you know, you can call them the city founders, but that's probably just a self-appointed title they gave themselves. But these people were owners of pieces of land and they would put out literal flyers to population centers in the East Coast where most of the people still lived at that time, probably, you know, in the early 1800s as the population center of gravity shifted slowly to the West, but it was still mostly in the East. They would put out these flyers promoting Chicago as the new, you know, gold, gold coast of the Midwest. And people would um, rush there, you know, trying to make their fortune or make their dreams come true by buying land, setting up uh, businesses, farms uh, in the surrounding areas, and maybe even manufacturing at a certain point. Uh, But there was, there was things that I, I've, I've actually seen in my, my own independent studies of places like Chicago doing that. Yeah, Chicago is another city that was sort of formed mostly uh, as a trade network for agricultural supply chains. Yeah, uh, no, no question. I mean, it, it, there yeah. are legitimate reasons for Chicago being a, yeah. a hub. I mean, there it's, it's located on the southern tip of Lake Michigan, and it acts as sort of a intermediate point between the Great Lakes, the railroad networks, and the Mississippi. So it's, right. a, it's a wonderful place for agricultural and uh, goods uh, movement and logistics from the railroads to the, the shipping along the rivers and lakes. Yeah, and that's why a lot of commodities indexes are still based out of Chicago. I mean, that's just that's well, sort of... That's his, that's mainly historical. I mean, that's that's yeah. where it made sense to set it up, and that that's where it continued. I mean, that's just you know the same reason the New York Stock Exchange is you know the center of finance uh, for equities in the United States. Although Nasdaq, I mean, technically is probably doing more trading, but uh, it's it's it doesn't have the brand, and so that's that's why you have in Chicago you have CME Group, which owns basically uh, the Chicago Board of Trade. Uh, the, the, the options board, I believe, is there. They have, um, they have, I think, a metals exchange. I mean, it's it's basically just the all the commodities in the United States. If you're in either speculation or actual legitimate trading of commodities, uh, it's pretty much focused in Chicago. And uh, unfortunately, most of the trading today is is actually it's about 90 percent speculative as opposed to legitimate like people because the, the reason the the futures and options market were set up originally was to actually hedge um, price risk of farming goods so the, the canonical example is if you are a farmer and you have 100 acres and you need to uh, put a lot of capital into those acres uh, and you budget enough money so that you are expected to re- return a profit if the price is at, let's say, $10 a bushel. But if the price drops to $9 a bushel and you've already invested all this capital uh, and you've, um, you've borrowed, that's, the, that's the, probably the other big risk uh, as well uh, because in order to, to pay for the seeds, uh, to maybe uh, have enough money to hire a team of horses to pull plows, things like that, uh, or even to rent the land, uh, you oftentimes would borrow uh, the money, and then if the price drops, your debt obligations don't change, and so therefore you're in the red, and you may not have any cash or liquidity to pay 
uh, your, your debt obligations. And so what you end up doing is you buy a futures contract that is long, um, or actually you offset, you offset the price risk. And so you basically, if you're, if you're naturally long, uh, so in other words, what long means is that if the price goes up, you benefit. So it's just like in the stock market, if you short it, the price goes down, you benefit. So in order to lock in the price at which you are expecting to make money on, you would, you would obtain an offsetting amount of these financial instruments, these futures that was the, or the forward was actually the original instrument that they used. And then the future kind of is a slightly more modern version of that. But you would basically uh, short the, the item that you uh, are going to be selling. Uh, so you would actually be offset and the price would basically, if the price went up, you would benefit on your farm because you're selling for higher and then you would lose a little bit on your, your financial contract. But if the opposite happened, you would actually make money on the short that you put in. Uh, and so that way you would, you would not uh, be unable to pay your debt obligations. I hope that made sense to people, but it's basically, it's a simple concept. It's just an offsetting contract that gives you uh, the ability to lock in a price. Uh, and that enables you to not basically go broke. And the, uh, the original reason they set up the Chicago Board of Trade was to actually do things like that. And that was like 90% of the, the trading that was going on. It was basically these, these commodities companies or banks that would basically enter these contracts with these farmers. And then they would kind of, they, they would be the speculative end of it. Uh, and then the farmer would be the, the hedge. Uh, but now it's reversed to the point where it's mostly these hedge funds that have set up these huge investment capital funds that they just they just basically speculate on where prices are going to go and they in my opinion they don't add any value to the economy i think it's actually somewhat corrosive um but a lot of these guys if they're good they make they make as much money as the equities traders or hedge fund managers do which is in the order of billions of dollars so it's it's totally captured chicago today it's part of the fire economy the financial insurance and real estate economy of the united states as we've offshored much of our manufacturing base. There's not much production other than agriculture left, which is still somewhat of a competitive and comparative advantage sector for the United States, which is kind of interesting. But unfortunately, the employment is not there. And so most people are shoved into these stupid services industries, which are kind of fluff in my opinion, um, and don't really generate things that are essential to life, you know, like uh, making things and growing things and building things. And, um, and so that's where we've gotten. I mean, it, it used to be a kind of legitimate, foundationally sound economy, in my opinion. And it's it's gotten into la-la land as we've gotten into automation and people have nothing to do. So they end up, you know, working for hedge funds and wrecking the economy when their, their speculative bets don't go right. So it's quite different. Yeah, I mean, the the days of rich guys in Boston losing their shirts on a bad land speculation deal in Kentucky seem qu- quaint <laughs> compared, yeah. compared to what you have now. Yeah. Where, you have yeah, trillion dollar all, bailouts, you know. Yeah, trillion dollar bailouts. Reserve, and and at, at the time, just... unless, this, this person, unless these families were really well connected, they, they suffered. There and, was, and it, it was there also isolated to a certain geography. I mean, there right, were panics, right. there were financial panics, and there were some oh, yeah. crazy swings. But <laughs> if you look at the historical charts of the value of the dollar, I mean, it was it, it went up and down like anything, 
you know, that is in the real world, but it was actually for like a hundred years because it was sort of pegged to gold and things like that. And there wasn't the money printing that we have today. It was like literally in a trading band of like plus or minus 20% for a hundred years. I mean, today the value of the dollar since the implementation of the federal reserve, I mean, it's down like 95%. Okay. So there has been a rampant inflation that has just eaten up the, the wealth of a lot of people that were not in these kind of um, inflationary assets, which is right. basically, and, yeah. And, and a lot of that has to do with just low volume of monetary usage. You know, the, the, the actual money flow and the money velocity of the economy in, in colonial America, uh, post-revolutionary America, even ante, the antebellum America uh, was, was low. Because most assets were fixed, most assets appreciated or depreciated according to the amount of personal investment you made into the asset, so aka basically land. Yeah, the value of your land depended on what you actually did or didn't do to that land. So there was very little necessity for a large money supply. There was very little necessity for a money supply in a lot of ways because most people basically utilized an advanced form of bartering um, in sort of early, I guess you could call them financial markets or early commodity markets. But early markets were very much the, you know, the way in which most family farms exchanged goods for other goods or exchanged goods for the promises of other goods or for small amounts of currency that could then be used to easily purchase large amounts of, of goods. You know, it was it was a relatively simple but sophisticated enough system to facilitate huge agricultural growth. Um, I think that also, again, it, this is a problem of cultural moray. Uh, the, the civilization that was being sort of formed in the ether of early America was very much rooted in a, a long history of English cultural development that precluded one to engage in speculation, to engage in greedy behavior, to engage in unwise behavior that did not factor in the long term. Because there was very little that could be done unless you were a highly well-connected and powerful family to survive a financial problem. And especially in post-revolutionary America, there was very little room for error. So it was a very conservative place financially for a variety of reasons. Um, and in fact, you can make the argument that the first, the early you know, banks of the United States or central banks were a conservative financial outlook. They were an attempt to prevent financial panics, mostly because I, I you know, th there's all this conspiracy stuff about the Rothschilds or whatever. If you look at it pragmatically, it's basically built on the premise that you know we, we are severely in debt as a country. We have very little financial capital to work with. We have very little industrial capital. We have very little leeway if there's some kind of financial panic, and we need a way to prevent that in the long term. You can see the logic of Jefferson of, uh, I'm sorry, not Jefferson Hamilton and others, uh, John Quincy Adams, for example, who would later help push for this. In, in, in their outlook, their outlook being, we do not have room for error. We do not have the ability to sort of play loose 
because we have not invested in certain things. We have not done certain things that certain European countries have that allow them to engage in speculation more so than us, to take risks more so than us. By the time that um, you know, one of the nation's most notorious land speculators became president, Andrew Jackson, the the reforms that Jefferson, uh, again, I keep saying Jefferson, Hamilton had made to our industrial policy had started to take effect. And the reforms he had made to the financial policy had started to take effect. So the country was able to, you know, weather through the destruction of its first central bank at the hands of someone like Jackson, because a, a lot of what Hamilton and others like him had laid down the foundations for had started to actually come to fruition, especially in New England. And the country was on a much steadier path from an infrastructure standpoint, from a uh, farming and family formation standpoint, from an industrial standpoint, and from a financial standpoint. It had everything going for it. Um, and many of the things that Jefferson had done from a foreign policy reform policy perspective, killing off the Barbary pirates, freeing up the Mediterranean for American trade and export, um, freeing up the Caribbean for American trade and export. That was also very instrumental in sort of growing the American economy to where it needed to be in the 1820s when Andrew Jackson and, and his ideas really start to take shape and America becomes this sort of more industrialized uh, country. But Despite a lot of that industrialization, um, America really did not take off in its, I guess you can call it the industrialization of its farm territory or its, its farming sphere for uh, at least another hundred years. Uh, it, the industrialization is, is, or mechanization, these are terms that are, I think thrown around very lightly. Um, a lot of that has to do, I think, with um, uneducated and overly reactive um, I would call them left-wing activists who are intertwined with farming lobby in modern America. Um, they have a very peculiar view on agriculture um, that sort of precludes one from ever engaging in anything that might be organized or centralized, not to make a shilling argument for Monsanto, but you can kind of see their logic playing out in a very bad way eventually and that you wouldn't just effectively be able to feed all the people we have here. Well, I mean, you couldn't do it with the current skill set that we have. Right. And we, you couldn't do it with the current way that land is allocated. In theory, you could probably carve up the United States acreage and there's 400 million acres of arable land in the, four, in the lower 48 last I remember. And you you could possibly give out you know four or, or more acres to each you know person but the problem is the infrastructure is just not set up for that and to be specific you would need to irrigate it um, and it would have to be done on a much more local basis whereas today uh, it's incredibly industrialized where you have petroleum running at this point practically automated combines over much of the the grain belt to pick up a lot of that that produce uh, or agricultural output and then it has to be processed in an industrial way at mills and that infrastructure is all centralized um, I mean effectively they're run by agribusinesses and corporations and trading companies and and large owners of these farms and the individual person simply doesn't know how to do it. Uh, you could probably get you know a handful of people maybe a million people to kind of grow their own food in their 
their little plots of land. But most people don't have the acreage. It's owned by other people uh, or the government. Uh, and the, the government land, by the way, is really not suitable for agriculture. It's more ranch land. And that's in, predominantly in the West. So the, the entire like distribution of the land would have to be addressed. The infrastructure would have to be downscaled and decentralized. And then the skills would have to be changed. And then the will obviously would have to be there. And I don't think the will is there. I think most people like to live this kind of like urban cosmopolitan Ali McBeal, LA law bullshit life. And it's, it's just doesn't appeal to most people. They want to live in these cities where they think it's exciting. And I don't think people would want to to just be a farmer, but they could in theory, it would just have to be an enormous transformation of society. And that's not going to happen in America the way, you know, things are run. You would have to force it on people or, or people would start starving and then things might change. But I, I, I've thought about this stuff. It's like you could sort of do some of this agriculture on a small scale and make it sort of defensible if you live in the South in particular, where we've talked to our, our friends at Rebel Yell, where some of them live, and they, they talk about how there's a lot of abandoned family farms, and there's so much rainfall, and the climate is so mild that you can actually grow food relatively easily. But if you're, again, talking about taking the land that is in the middle of the country, especially in the northern middle part of it, and then giving that out to people and having them farm it i mean you'd have to have horses come back you'd it would just totally uh transform society and it, it couldn't happen overnight if nothing else yeah no i i i agree i agree so one of the i think one of the other things that people often notice in modern farming is uh, farming subsidies, a lot of the special treatment of farmers. Okay, let me stop you right there. For, I haven't like double checked these numbers recently, but the subsidy subsidy number that I saw for like one of the sectors for like corn or whatever, it was like fifty billion dollars. I mean, fucking Israel gets that, you know, every few years. I mean, it's like it's not that much. I mean, the federal budget is four trillion dollars. So I just want to get that out there right off the bat. No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to kvetch about it. Yeah, I didn't think you it's were, not, but for anybody not, who had this great. conception that, like, the Republicans are getting this huge handout, not no. really, not really. No, no. Um, food prices in this country would be a lot worse if it weren't for the Farm Bill and other slight manipulations that the feds yeah, are I mean, the farm state bill, governments that are. stuff is passed so that they get the sort of swing states like Iowa to kind of go one way or the other. But like nobody lives in Iowa. I mean, there's what, like 4 million people at most. I mean, th these are depopulated areas. That's people really. Well, that, yeah, that, that's, know. that's actually a good point is <laughs> if the population of America continues, especially the heartland, what what is the future of farm subsidies and and the farm bill and, and sort of in catering to the the peculiar interests of the Iowan and Indiana and and, and Nebraskan farming class if they just are going to vanish from the face of the earth that I don't know what the outlook for American politics is like in twenty years but at some point someone's going to have to bring that up. Well, I mean, someone's going to farm it because there's an incentive to do so. But in terms of the politics, you'd have to ask Hank. I mean, I don't 
I don't follow yeah. this stuff. Yeah, Hank will be on for the the next episode in this series that we do to, to give it. We're going to do a bigger deep dive. With okay, him. no promises though when this is going to be because uh, we uh, we may have guests coming in. So right, our schedule is a mess. We, we're all kind of drunk and we don't know what we're doing anymore. But um, <laughs> I, I I wanted to make a point though. So people. I guess kvetch a lot about this stuff. You know, I never, I never see the end of articles like bitching about um, the you know farming subsidies, and a lot of it is always politically tinted. Like, why why are we giving farming subsidies to rednecks in Kansas instead of money to like queer trans black bodies in downtown Los Angeles? Uh, you know, whatever. But this, there's a peculiar history of the government's relationship with farmers. It actually starts in Virginia and then Maryland uh, kind of jointly almost like basically a year later after this happened. So after, uh, you know, well over a century of agricultural development, in 1730, farmers in Virginia who had very much uh, had, had really developed a state agriculturally, Virginia was pretty much farmed out. A lot of the land was owned. Um, most of the land was being utilized by that point for a mixture of grain and livestock. Predominant grain being wheat, although there was some corn, and the predominant livestock being pork and uh, obviously cattle. Uh, Virginia is sort of a state just built for agriculture, the soil's great. There's a there's just an an abundance, or there used to be an abundance of riverways and waterways that were pretty easily navigatable. There were small bays, yeah. uh, and it has sea access. It has a very has and it has a ton of coastline well, that's well, very to, easy to build on. To build off what I was saying again about the South before, th- this is a good example. I mean, if you drive through Virginia, I mean. Everything is green. It's warm usually, unless it's you know in the middle of winter and maybe it gets you know a little bit cold. But uh, or at least most of the eastern part of it, maybe the the western part. You know when you get up in the Appalachians, it gets colder as well. But the majority of the state is it's a great climate for growing. It's it's subtropical or semi-tropical. I forget exactly what it's called. Uh, in contrast with Minnesota, where you're covered in ice, you know, like half the year, uh, and you really have to be smart about how you plant and think about things. But in contrast, you've got in Virginia, you've got rainfall, you've got the warmth, and it's just a great place to have a plantation. That's why they did that. There. Well, not just a plant. It wasn't even like plantations. Uh, a lot of the farms were there actually weren't that many plantation farms early on in Virginia. Virginia had this characteristic of being one of the more southern states that was much more like New England in its farming outlook. It's tobacco, uh, from what I understand. What it, well, it was originally, there was a lot of, yeah, a great deal of tobacco. But tobacco eventually gave way to cattle, to uh, wheat, to other crops as being predominant. Virginia still produced a huge amount of tobacco, but just it became dwarfed by the sheer size of other kinds of agricultural production. Because Virginia, as Adam was saying, is sort of the perfect state for growing things. Um, and, you know, about the winters, I mean, the winters do not even get that bad, for, you know, relative to even the Midwest, which is thought of as the, the agricultural wonderland. Virginia, in, in many ways, 
has better winters, more survivable winters than the Midwest does. Uh, the, the problem with modern Virginia and its farming outlook is mostly there's just so many people. Uh, and it's very much more of a metropolitan state. It was very involved in um, naval production. It was very involved in manufacturing, uh, chemical plants in sort of the 20th century or the late 19th and the 20th century. It became much more of an industrial state. Uh and gave up a great deal of its farmland to, to uh, property owners, to manufacturing, to just general infrastructure. Uh, a lot of the waterways were kind of rendered less useful for various reasons for energy production um, and, and for clearing out property for more sort of housing development and, and so on. Uh, but Virginia used to be the, per, the ideal state. And so um, there, there were a great deal of small farmers in Virginia and there are a great deal of large farmers. And thus begins uh, government's real kind of tight involvement with these farmers. So in 1730, you have like one of the first real cases of regulatory capture. And this is something that will be repeated again and again and again, especially in the 20th century, especially in like in post-1930s um, sort of Great Depression and Dust Bowl era farming legislation with the USDA and a lot of what things the Roosevelt administration or yeah Roosevelt administration was trying to do, um, and in, you know in 1938 with sort of almost permanent uh, beginning of the Farm Bill or I think it was technically called like the Agricultural Adjustment Act of uh, 1938 it was sort of like, well, there were a lot of these overly sophisticated. Um, ways of naming legislation and naming um, approaches to solving problems in the 30s because the technocracy and um, widespread bureaucracy were f coming to full fruition after sort of fermenting for 40 years in, in the progressive era, uh, which we talked about not too long ago. But uh, and Virginia Inspection Act of 1730 basically did a lot of things, but uh, it basically sets up state-run and uh, pioneered state-run grading uh, or inspection of grading, packing, and marketing of agricultural products. What this did was effectively priced out a huge amount of small family landowners or made their lives difficult. So the commercial mentality, if we can go back to that, of a lot of the small family farms became very limited um, and it became difficult. Now, uh, Virginia farming still remained predominantly a family farm-based environment for uh, a great deal longer after the revolution into the antebellum era and post, even post-Civil War era. Um, but this had a very deleterious effect early on on sort of the, the growth of the small, diffused family farm that would often specialize and, and would gain certain skill sets and kind of develop a network of farms that would build farming communities and farming and just general farming networks that really contributed to the early population growth of the United States and just general economic growth. Um, a lot of states followed thereafter. Maryland followed, I believe, the next year. Uh, Pennsylvania followed not long after, New York followed, New Jersey followed, South Carolina followed, a lot of the big agricultural states in the country and then the rest of the country uh, at the time engage, started engaging in this. 
And this, again, would really continue well into uh, the post-1940s and 1950s America when there was a huge investment in various um, farm labor standards and farm labor um, legislation that limited what exactly um, farmers could engage in in regards to labor practice, what they could have their labor do, what they couldn't have their labor do, um, certain safety precautions that had to be put in place for uh, all of the farm labor across the country, regardless of the industry of farming you were in, uh, whether you were a cattle rancher or an indigo farmer, you had to engage in standardized labor practices. And that standardization element is really um, a characteristic more so of 20th century American farming that we'll, we'll get to uh, rather than this earlier period. This earlier period, you start seeing elements of it. But again, you have a society that has a cultural moray of, tr of uh, great trustworthiness and would you know happily engage in this, but also doesn't always see the need and is more focused on growth, more focused on profit, um, and more focused on building out the family's total asset worth was probably more so the the ideal rather than building out um, a large farming complex, which is, I think, much more the goal in the 1940s and 50s in the post-war era and is certainly kind of the goal of, uh, I think, a lot of farms now. Um, sort of around the time of the revolution and then shortly thereafter, you really have the beginnings of the wheat belt and, you know, on the you know, kind of the Shenandoah Valley and, and parts of Virginia, parts of New, all the way up to New York. This wheat belt kind of had this weird characteristic in that it would move eastward and eastward and eastward. And we talked about the Morrill Act, Hatch Act, homesteading. Um, that eastward wave of wheat development eventually made its way to the Red River Valley in the Pacific Northwest, made its way to the California Central Valley, made its way to uh, Oregon and, and eastern Washington, um, but it obviously took hold in the Midwest. Now, the Midwest, uh, the Red River Valley, and, and California are really where industrialized farming takes off. That's where it becomes most apparent. Really, in the, the 18, 1870s, 1880s. Well, America is actually, to this day, but it comes from this period, um, to this day, a agricultural technology country. There was quite a few advances done in wheat harvesting, in particular, uh, the, the combine, the, the reaper, McCormick reaper in particular, were developed in America. And to this day, you know, John Deere is sort of a, not really a household name, perhaps, but in the sort of industrial space and agricultural area, it is definitely a household name, and that is an American company. And that was all developed because predominantly of the, the vast wheat fields. Uh, you know, I can't speak to California's role in this, but those two technologies were examples of American innovation in agriculture. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the... I can't remember when it was. I think it was right at the cusp of uh, 1770, 1797, uh, the cast iron plow was a huge advancement. might seem inconsequential, but that was incredibly useful 
for agricultural development, especially for wheat and, and any kind of cereal grain that were very popular. The reason being that in the Midwest, despite a lot of the flatness, you had a lot of rock formations, a lot of uh, stretches of land that had a huge amount of buried rock, and it was difficult to get around that. That was a huge problem in yeah. the Northeast as well. And it was a huge problem back in England. And it actually, you know, funnily enough, a lot, a lot of these people uh, dealt with the same problem in England. In England, they were dealing with it on hillsides on these sort of grassy knolls and these grassy hillsides and it would be full of rocks and it would be difficult to, to plant in. Um, and in a lot of cases, they weren't even properly developed until the 1920s and 30s. Uh, but the cast iron plow in America basically allowed you to just pulverize right through this rock and just crush right through it, grind it back into the soil, and you could easily plant how, it How were plows made prior? Were they made of wood and they had like metal sort of sheets on top of it? or Because you have to have Yeah, something. it was basically like mold board. Yeah. It was, it was mold board um, with strips of metal yeah. kind of crudely nailed on. And it right. was mostly about moving things out of the way instead of actually plowing the land properly. Even though they were using the terminology as plows and they were trying to plow through things, they didn't actually plow. They didn't really do their job. You know, the cast iron plow was really the first plow that did, did what it was designed to do, which was completely clear out lines in ground for planting. And this sort of, this kicks off, um, really the beginning of what you know, Adam was saying just now in, in American technology and agriculture. American technology and agriculture really comes on into its own um, in, uh, through a lot of innovations in the South um, for sort of mass production of certain cash crop, but also in the post, um, sort of post progressive era, or right at the end of the progressive era, mostly with the arrival of guys like Henry Ford, um, the first gasoline-based tractors in sort of 1915 and 1916. Yeah, the, um, the Fords and tractors are sort of the Fords, Ford companies, major kind of iconic vehicle in that in that sector. You know, today I don't think they've commanded the, the, the market share that they used to, but Henry Ford grew up on a farm, and actually one of his initial and I think this changed over time as, as literally his company and himself and his industry transformed in his lifetime the the nature of the American uh, culture and population. But he grew up on a farm and he initially thought, you know, what he was doing with his motor vehicles was getting people off of that life so that they could, you know, live a more enjoyable one. And only in his later years, after he saw the effects of urbanization and automation of so much of the work that people used to do, that did he start engaging himself in things like camping to basically escape it all. So it's it's really kind of ironic how even technologists of that era were starting to question once they've sort of made their contribution and their money, was it really a good thing? But I, I, I'll, for the record, I, I am a huge fan of Henry Ford. I think he was a tremendous individual, and he was instrumental in making, if not the country, the Midwest, at least a, a center of innovation and development for arguably the world. So right. I, yeah, he's a very interesting, interesting person to me. 
Yeah, and you can you can look at finalization of a lot of railroads in the 1860s and 70s and telegraph lines that were particularly useful for the widespread all the way into California and Midwestern, Pacific Northwestern agricultural landscapes in order they could kind of properly develop communication structure with the export markets back east. They could develop demand structure with uh, regional supply, with regional wholesalers. And you start to see that the the aspects of, I think, the farming economy that people don't necessarily take, uh, people take for granted, this concept of wholesalers, um, commodity brokers, uh, the financers, the insurance aspect of farming is something I think a lot of people not necessarily engaged in farming, uh, something they just don't understand as being a huge component of post post um, uh, Civil War, but especially post um, you know nineteen really beginning of twentieth century phenomena is this huge introduction of the insurance market in real estate loan market in uh, in sort of propelling. Pre World War One and especially post World War One American um, agricultural growth. So this this era, you know, we're kind of leading up to this era in the late 1880s, 1890s, and this is when things like refrigeration are becoming widespread. Um, this allows for the development of consumer preference models. Consumer preference models are really why we start to see the rise of agriculture and big agro. Uh, big yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the things that led to the decline of the family farm because you can transport these foodstuffs over vast distances today in literal like refrigerated trucks, and it was originally uh, over rail. But the the stockyards of Chicago, which are no longer there, were set up because the the railroad cars, I mean, we talk about, you know, getting loaded onto cattle cars, but this is literally how it used to be. Uh, it doesn't really work this way anymore because you can basically slaughter the animals locally and then refrigerate them and then transport them to the end user. But it used to be that you had to keep them alive while they're transported prior to refrigeration. So they would basically get on these big cattle cars, go up to places like the Swift processing centers in, around Chicago, and just they would kill them. And then they would basically transport them as quickly as possible to the centers of consumption because that was the quickest way to do it from that point. But today, I mean, you you can move it, you know, in any direction, and it really doesn't matter. Um, so the swift yards are gone, and that's that's one example of you know how the, the kind of the reason I said you know the family farm is is gone away is because the need for local production has gone away. You can obtain these things from much further distances now because of refrigeration um, and other technologies like, you know, airplanes and things like that. I mean, people well, get, yeah, I mean, people get you know, crab from Alaska, you know, on a daily basis in some restaurants. I mean, it's so crazy. How, and it doesn't taste like complete shit. I mean, yeah. that that's, that's, I mean, Victor Davis Hanson again had, had a quote um, in a talk he gave to C-SPAN a long time ago, That's, but it's a good talk. And he says, um, if we didn't have big agriculture, we would have to invent it. And he says that begrudgingly because Victor Davis Hanson has spent his life writing about the problems of big agriculture. But it, there's, a real, there's a pragmatic realization that the current United States would just not survive 
without it. That it was a necessary development, well, and it was a very purposeful development. It's only, again, I mean, we talked about this, you know, 30 minutes ago, but it's basically because we're not set up for it. And if we were set up for it, we would lose a lot of other things. Uh, we would gain independence on a personal level from self-sufficiency standpoint, but you could not have the the uh, the production of all the other things that people consume because everybody would be working on basically eating, eating, and you're growing enough to eat. And so it, it's possible theoretically, but you know, if you want all the iPhones, if you want the television, which arguably is bullshit, but I mean, if you want all that other stuff, you have to basically make agriculture super efficient and that's how it, it's run today. Uh, and it, things are cheap and that's why there's so much food. People are obese. But um, if, if we didn't have that, you know, people could still survive. It's just, you, you wouldn't have the time and the energy to devote to creating all these other arguably superfluous, but nonetheless desirable things because people obviously pay for them. So things would have to change. Right. And, you know, the beginning of the 20th century um, really starts to see a lot of the technological change and uh, cultural centralization and land centralization that sort of characterizes modern farming. So, for example, um, the first farming union, or the farmers' union, was started in 1902. And around that time, uh, you, you know, you really start to see the beginnings of um, things like agronomy, if you want to call it that, or sort of chemical engineering. Due to the Morrill Act and due to a lot of state grants. Um, well, if I could so, add, the, the main reason that happened was because the frontier was closed. I mean, prior years, you could to, to increase productivity, you would just go get more land and go get more people from Europe or wherever to settle it. And then your production would go up. But once you've actually settled all the available land, you're then you're going to have to turn into basically squeezing more out of each acre. And right. that's when you get the petrochemical introduction, you get the GPS systems running the combines, you get all the satellite imagery sort of studying, you know, the, the sort of crop yields of various different experimental ways of farming things with different chemicals or different seeds. And then you get the GMOs. I mean, it's just, it's a big, big industry, obviously, but the incentives are there to increase yield always. And if you are up against space constraints, the only way you, you grow more is you basically go up, sort of like why skyscrapers exist. And the way you grow up and increase the yields is increase the, the rate at which things grow, requires less energy, less inputs, and have more output. So that's basic you know, efficiency uh, economics right there. But that's, that's the reason. We've run out of capacity, so we have to increase each acre. Yeah. And so, you know, starting in like 1900, due to the Morrill Act, a lot of universities are now slowly becoming intertwined and the credentialist spheres and sort of professional economic spheres becoming intertwined with the farming sphere of the United States. So you have the rise of the agricultural engineers and the agricultural economists. You also have the rise of a lot of um, pioneered crop experimentation like Adam is talking about. So this is around the time when you start to see um, the first development of d disease-resistant varieties of plants. 
Um, the problem is that the introduction of a lot of these chemical components, uh, the use of mechanization on the farm, the farmers' unions are, are you know, beginning also because farms are now becoming very unsafe to work on. Where they used to be, you know, there was a, there was always a risk to working on a farm, um, but the the number of deaths tripled rapidly. The farming output was incredible, but the number of deaths tripled in a two-year time span in the early 20th century. So you can see sort of the rationale as being somewhat genuine for the introduction of a lot of farm labor standards in the 40s and 50s after the, the Second World War. Um, suddenly people are realizing that farms are, are producing an incredible amount of product that's incredibly fresh and can be shipped all over. You know, there's the development of um, – trucking networks in the late 1910s and early 1920s uh, that allow you to kind of bring perishable items, dairy products uh, from six states away and, and it still be fresh the next day. That sort of, that sort of development um, is, is also ongoing at this time. And you, you can see why, um, you know, if there's this triple the amount of deaths on farms and, and, and just explosion number of injuries, uh, the career ending injuries, Farm labor standards feel as though they're sort of a natural response to farm owners and farming corporations not really understanding to an extent the technology that they're working with and not understanding how to use it properly. Um, by like the 1920s, though, and, and actually, you know, so the era before the 1920s. And uh, in the 1920s, this is often kind of referred to as the, the our kind of golden age of agriculture because we still are growing the number of small family farms. They're actually growing. The total share of their population is growing, um, despite a lot of the immigration that's going that's occurring from south, you know, uh, Central Europe, Southern Europe, Eastern Europe, Midwestern farmers, Pacific Northwestern farmers, Californian farmers. Are, uh, are growing their population, they're expanding territory, there's more and more diffused farms every year, um, and everything seems to be still be going well with the American agricultural industry. The American farming population would peak, the number of farms would also peak um, in the 1930s. The 1930s really, you know, in 19, actually on the year 1930s when the, um, the number of farms peaks at about just over 7 million farms which was incredible that we'd have like that many farms you know diffused widely across the country and there were a lot of small agricultural um, settlements or property owners who didn't necessarily qualify as farms at the time but were contributing to just sort of the general agricultural output of the country and the internal agricultural trade of the country um, a lot of this had to do with increased European demand because Europe had effectively destroyed huge swaths of farmland permanently due to trench warfare and uh, chemical warfare inside of Europe. Um, also had to just do with a growing U.S. population and a population in the United States that was getting richer and could afford to eat, uh, consume more calories on a yearly basis. Um, as I said before, 
1920s really saw the rise of a lot of these engineers and, and, and economists. But you also start to see the rise of the kind of the early elements of uh, industrialization at large scale. And uh, you see com- you know, huge commodity production and everything else. You see machines, management, all of it. That all starts to arise as long, along with a huge financial backbone. Most of the early um, work that's done is done again in the Red River Valley. But as it expands to California, the Central Valley of California, the San Joaquin Valley in particular, is where you see uh, huge amounts of mechanization. And you see the introduction of um, standardized farming practice all across the kind of the vertical supply chain of the farm itself and between the farm and its uh, its suppliers of, of raw materials and, and tools and those it actually sells to. Everything's becoming standardized and systematized. There's a, a network of farming economists who are inheriting a lot of ideas from uh, Frederick Taylor, you know, f- founder of scientific management in 1915. When coupled with uh, a lot of what was becoming like dry land farming at the time in order to expand, continue expanding on farmland that hadn't really been properly uh, developed yet, suddenly you're seeing widespread national uh, adaption of farming standards informally at first through various associations but then formally at the federal level the 1920s were still kind of a golden era and that there wasn't too much federal control um, but the USDA the office of farm management they really started to um, well, I think along with um, uh, the Bureau of Markets and uh, Division of Statistics, they all really kind of come together um, and create the Bureau of Agricultural Economics, and they lay down um, a lot of the early analysis, statistical analysis that would make up much of the opinion that would go into the development of farm standards. And this all occurred just right before the Great Depression, right before the Dust Bowl, and with the Dust Bowl, there was a huge demand on the part of farmers um, and, and a huge demand on the part of consumers with consumer preference models that demand, you know, where you have um, people in Florida demanding Alaskan crab and people in California demanding Florida oranges. And you have to find a way to satisfy those demands. All of this coalesces sort of as a perfect storm in the 1930s. And the general response on the part of the American government, on the American, like you know, more and more um, um, conglomerated farming community, large-scale farming suppliers, is to um, standardize and to remove a lot of the availability of land for sm- small-scale farmers. Prices go up. Uh, the prices of production go up. A lot of land is irrevocably lost or um, uh, somewhat temporarily lost for several decades, so there's less and less farmers in general. A lot of those farmers sell their land rights because they believe it's worth nothing to large-scale corporations, and you start to see the development of what we have now, which is uh, more and more centralized land control for, for, for agricultural production. 
the death, you know, the slow death of the kind of small American farmers is a lot more complex, and I think we're we're going to continue going into it on, on other shows. But I want you guys to kind of ruminate and imagine maybe why exactly we're having a lot of the cultural problems we have now, where everything seems centralized and controlled, and there's a distinct lack of availability of, of freedom and there's this distinct lack in certain what we would think of as core skills or core understandings um, and maybe some of that has to do with sort of the general decline of the amount in the daily life of farmers in this country and how our lives in, in this country used to revolve around um, agricultural production even if we were one of the, the few that wasn't directly or indirectly engaged in it. 